The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You found the most positive place on the internet. Thanks for listening to UnityOnlineRadio.org. Are you ready to create a life that's intentional and dynamic? Welcome to The Intentional Spirit with your host, Reverend Temple Hayes. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being with us today. And more importantly, thank you for being an intentional spirit. We know very clearly that being an intentional spirit is is somewhat expanded beyond setting goals or New Year's resolutions, because an intentional spirit keeps walking on their journey and their path of life, shamanically, really, when you think about it. And we really believe that life's events and circumstances help shape shift us to become more in our lives and a greater contributor to this planet. None other today than our incredible guest, as we have Claude Anshin with us today. Claude, welcome wonderful Zen master. You are just a blessing to this planet and you have so much to say and I'm so delighted that you're here. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. And would you prefer that I refer to you as Reverend Hayes or may I call it Temple? Great. Yeah. Um, Thank you for having me on the show Temple and and really thank you to all the people who listen in to you. Um, Where would you like to begin? Well, you know, I find that our our listeners are tuning in from all over the world, either live time now or later. And I find that what is the richness and the pearl and the reassurance to people listening is that often we'll see, you know, someone like you or Temple Hayes, like with an organization or a foundation or, you know, whatever, in our humble spirits that we are. And they think, well, we just went from A to B. And that's not the case. You know, we've had this journey of life that's uh, shaped us. We've had the kind and unkind moments of our lives. And I think it's wonderful. Uh, Claude, If can I call you Claude? Is that okay? And all our information will be featured, you know, that people can read all about you and your bio. As a matter of fact, we've already promoted it today. But that being said, um, to tell us a little bit about the start of your life and your journey and how you got involved in um, being a a Zen monk, what led you on this path to your Zalto organization, all of this and everything else you want to tell about you and your work. And thanks. Um, I'd be glad to. Okay. First, I will explain that um, I am a fully ordained Zen Buddhist monk. And so I experience the world. um, Well, let's say I, I sort of rather understand my experience in the world from a particular angle of perception. Now, I was born in a very small rural farming community. Oh, I say I grew up in a very small rural farming community in Northwest Pennsylvania, a place called Waterford. It's just south of Erie. Um, I was actually born in Meadville, which is about 35, 40 miles south of Waterford. Um, My father was a school teacher. Uh, My mother 
um, was uh, she did domestic work. She also worked in in restaurants, those sorts of things. Um, my mother was um, quite young when I was born. She was 17. Um, she turned 18, 18 days after I was born. Oh, um, my father had been a soldier in the Second War. My grandfather had been a soldier in the First War. And my great-grandfather had been a soldier in the war with, uh, we call it the Spanish-American War. In Spain, they call it something different. So in the patriarchal lineage of my family, there was a, a history of military service, military combat service. Um, my mother's side of the family, I don't know so much about. Um, she didn't know her father. Um, and so I never got to know my uh, maternal grandfather. I only knew my maternal step-grandfather. And um, he was a restaurateur. He was a business guy. Um, I... Um, my, well, my father was very well liked in the, well, let's say he was active in the community. And on the surface of things, he was well liked. Um, my father taught uh, driver education and American history, although his master's degree was in uh, biochemistry, such as the, such as the call when you need a job, you know. Um, and my father was active in the politics of education. At one time, he was the president of the Pennsylvania State Teachers Association. Um, that demanded that he was away from home a lot. And in, the, in the community, my father served on the town council. He was a volunteer firefighter. He was a, um, he was a para, he was an, um, he was an EMT, sort of the predecessor of the EMTs today. Um, um, however, my father died at the age of 53 from alcoholism. Oh, wow. Yes. Um, I, um, my parents uh, divorced when I was um, 11. And what happened is my father was in a VA hospital and uh, my mother uh, packed up the house and left, took my sister and I with her. Um, now, in the family where I grew up, there was a lot of tension and there was a, um, a significant amount of violence. Um, uh, I experienced some pretty horrendous episodes of violence as a child. And, and my mother was the primary perpetrator of that violence, although my father was not, um, not absent from it. It just wasn't so consistent from him. My father was more absent. Um, now, when my mother left my father, she took me with her and I didn't want to go. Um, so I started at that time, uh, she moved to a place called Avon Lake, Ohio. It's a western suburb of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. It's between Cleveland and Lorraine. It's also up on the lake. Now, um, I was insistent upon wanting to go back home. Um, not, it, I don't know how I framed it, because as I'm sure you're aware and, and your listening audience is aware that um, memory is only a distant cousin. To truth, I mean, I, I don't beautiful. really. What a what a great way of saying that. Oh, thank memory you. Memory is a distant cousin to truth. Yes, that's awesome. What a yeah, statement. Thank you. Yes. Um. So, um. I kept, I kept pestering my mother to let me go back, to live with my dad. It was not so much that I wanted. I don't know if it was so much that I wanted to live with my dad, but I wanted to be back in my community. That's where all my friends were. That's where my safety was. And 
Um, and she, she refused. And then I started to run away from home. And uh, at one point, um, to prevent me from running away, they put me in my bedroom. They locked the door. They nailed the window shut and locked the door. Um, now, they couldn't keep me in there. They had to let me go to school. So my mother wouldn't let me go on the bus because on one occasion, I went to take the bus and my mother dropped me off. As soon as she left in the car, I took off. Now, so my solution, my mother would drive me to school and she would sit in the car and wait till I walked in the door. And I, I would sort of lurk in the hallway watching and as soon as she drove away, I'd take off. Mm. Um, as a result of my running away, I, I ended up spending some time in juvenile detention as a runaway. And eventually my mother did let me go back and live with my father. Now, because my father was active in the politics of education and because he and, and his dependence on alcohol really made his decisions for him, um, he wasn't around very much. So from the age of 12 on, I was making up my own rules. And I, I didn't have really um, a strong a family network uh, um, to to help me sort of navigate adolescence and and decide and and have us I just had to make stuff up um, so um, there were some positive things about that it wasn't all negative for example in 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 the high school where I went so it was grade seven through twelve there were like I don't know fifteen hundred kids seven through twelve it was very small um, and and I remember as a young man, a young boy growing up in the sort of early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, I, um, in school, I, had, I reached a point where I had a choice. I had to take either metal shop or woodworking. <laughs> I didn't want to do either. I wanted to take home economics because I was living alone and having to take care of the house. And so when I said, look, I want to take home economics, and the school wouldn't let me. Um, but because my father was a teacher at the same school where I went, um, this is one of the times that it was to my advantage. So I did end up taking home economics. I also took business courses. I learned how to type those sorts of things because it was, and it was more for my own survival because um, I had to take care of myself. Um, so that, and that had, those, those skills have served me um, as I've gone through life. Um, but all in all, um, um, I was a very lost and confused young boy. Um, athletics saved my life. They helped keep me. Well, I don't save my life. They helped keep me in school. And they were the one thing that they were a grounding place for me. But I, ex in reflection, I experience um, organized athletics like uh, football, baseball, wrestling basketball, those sorts of things, as um, paramilitary training. If you listen to the language of organized sports, if you look now at, at professional sports, if you watch even the Super Bowls coming up, if you, if you watch how this thing is marketed, yeah, yeah, jets fly over, and, and this is language, a lot of military language there. Um, and, and so, and then because of my father's, because of this patriarchal lineage of military service, um, my father was encouraging me to go into the military. Um, he, what he told me was that 
I, uh, I was too unsteady to really go to college right out of high school and that the military would help ground me, make a man out of me. And then there would be the GI Bill that could help me pay for college. Um, I joined the military. Um, I joined the military when I was still in high school. They had a program called Delayed Enlistment. So I was still in the army, weren't you? Yeah, I was in the army. Army Yeah, Yeah, I did. I joined the army um, in 1965 on the delayed enlistment program. So when I graduated from high school, I had about a month or so. And then I went right into the military. Um, I had all these notions about military service. But when I actually got off the bus, it was quite, the reality of the experience was quite different from my imaginations. Mm -hmm. And, And I understood when I got off the bus, well, I, 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 this was, I didn't want to be there. <laughs> People were screaming at me and ordering me around, and I didn't have any movement or choice. It's like all of a sudden, all of my freedoms were taken. All Well, what I called freedoms, they were all taken away from me. Sure. So my early, my early um, experiences, like through military training and stuff, were, were really difficult for me. Um, I was, I got into trouble. And, and, I, uh, yeah, I had a very difficult time in the military in the beginning. Um, now, I was, uh, I completed my training and I was uh, sent to Germany for some advanced um, military training. And, um, I, and when I was in the military, let's say, okay, so myself, I developed, um, I also developed a problem with alcohol. So while I was in high school and playing sports, um, I wasn't a regular drinker, but when I would pick up a drink, um, I, I couldn't stop. So um, when I, if I had one, I got drunk. And when I got drunk, I got into trouble. Um, I, um, that escalated in the, in, the, in the military because there, were no, there wasn't any age limit. I could just drink as much as I want whenever I wanted. And so that carried, so this drinking problem, this drinking issue carried over with me into my training in Europe. And um, I started to get in, into trouble with my, my drinking. I started to get in trouble with my drinking. My solution to that was to volunteer to go to Vietnam. So um, I volunteered at a young age to go to Vietnam. I, um, um, I, it was immediately accepted. Um, I went to Vietnam in uh, 1966, um, at the sort of right in the midst of this the big ex- escalation of uh, troop presence there. Um, I went over as an unattached infantryman, and I ended up being assigned uh, to an assault helicopter company as a door gunner. Um, that's I I. Uh, uh, that last, I, I served as a door gunner for about a month and a half or so. And then there was, a, we had a shortage of crew chiefs. And, and I had a, a high, I guess I had a high mechanical aptitude on the battery of tests that I took when I came in. They asked me if I wanted to be a crew chief. And I, and I, I immediately said yes, because I was hooked on the narcotic of war. I was hooked on the, the adrenaline rush that accompanied um, being under intense um, intense fire, enemy fire, um, when coming into a, a landing zone 
um, where, where, where with no place to no place to hide, no security, nothing. We were just targets, and but there was a there was a real intensity about that experience that that is uh, it, it's really addictive in nature. Um, I uh, was shot down in, in five times. I was uh, wounded. Uh, well, yes, thank you for that. Um, five times is is a lot, but it's not as much as some. It's more than some and not as much as others. Um, um, helicopters in Vietnam were, um, they were the workhorse of that military campaign. Um, they provided, because of the nature of the terrain that was war was being waged in, um, vehicle movement was difficult. So the helicopters really played a major role. Um, um, I spent a significant amount of time in military hospital um, as a result of injuries I received in Vietnam. And, um, and I left military hospital and was discharged from the military in 1968. Um, when I was, when I was, uh, I had reconstructive surgery on, on my, in my upper body and um, what I would, what, how they were treating uh, how they were dealing with pain management at that time is that I was um, being given regular um, doses of morphine and uh, also um, uh, some other kinds of um, uh, medications. Um, uh, other, other kind of medications were available to me uh, in pill form. So when I was discharged from the military, um, they, they didn't detox me. Um, I, I left with a real, I left with a serious dependence on narcotics, and um, and and that sort of set a tone for my life. I, I got out of the military. I went to, I started college. I didn't have the grades really to get accepted in college. My father had been a graduate of of um, uh, Slippery Rock State College. It's not Slippery Rock University. It's in Pennsylvania. And so he went down as an alumni and spoke on my behalf, and they admitted me on a probationary basis. Um, and so I, um, I started to college at Slippery Rock. Um, uh, I just, I just didn't, I didn't fit anywhere after the war. I can't um, imagine. I, I, I can't fathom. You know, sometimes, um, you know, people in our society, they can come across like they're so due or, you know, the world owes me and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I just can't imagine. I, I took the um, safe route. I, I grew up with a rageaholic, not an alcoholic, but mm -hmm. sometimes alcoholics are easier because at least, you know, when they're going to change where with a dad that's a rageaholic, you don't know when the next explosion is going to happen. And that being said, it's interesting that I took the safe route. I became an army reservist. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, so I was in that structure, like you're talking about, of yeah. just like I was just disappearing in uniform and the inability to ever use my own mind because I was told 24-7 what to do. But that being said, it, it falls so pale into 
I just can't imagine, you know, what it would be like, you know, people feel inconvenienced when they have to wait at a traffic light because the car isn't moving fast enough in front of them. And I'm not meaning to sound cynical today, but I mean, let's be real, right? But to go through what all of you did in Vietnam is just, you know, unfathomable to me. I just, I just, I thank you for serving. I, you know, I just, uh, my heart is so humbled by who you are. And it just, um, just brings tears to my eyes, you know, of, of what, individuals like you went through and then you know you mentioned it like well I I went to the mall well you know I I was shot at five times and I mean oh my gosh what integration I I guess in all of this I want to say the integration that has been required to me of your soul and your spirit and your personality to be who you are today I just I just say wow I'm very humbled and honored to be with you today, sir. Well, thank you. Well, it didn't, it, and it was a bumpy road. Uh-huh. And that actually, yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, it, it, so for for a, so I look at my life and in, in, in if I look at my life in in a broad brushstroke, I say there's the war before the war, the war, and the war after the war. So I grew up in a I grew up in family violence. I translated into the war, and then after the war, the only way I knew how to deal with conflict was to escalate the conflict to a point where um, uh, the other person just got afraid; they couldn't handle it um, because I, I didn't care. I mean, I didn't care whether I lived or died in a in a in a real in sort of a real world way. Um, my life was cons- my life was consumed by homelessness. Um, and drug addiction and violence for a long period of time. It's interesting enough, though, I did manage to get a bachelor's of education in um, from Slippery Rock. Uh, um, I uh, addiction made my choices for me. Um, the the suffering that I was living with was was coloring the way in which I viewed the world. It was also, it was also shaping my decisions for me. Um, I, and I was completely unaware of that. Um, I think it, it came, I think, so through a series of events, I ended up living in Massachusetts. And, um, and through a series of events, I ended up um, in uh, psychotherapy with an MD psychiatrist. And um, I remember sitting in his office one day and complaining because I, he, well, he asked me first, he said, if I use drugs and drank alcohol, and I said, yes. And he said, if you want the process to work, you have to stop. Can you stop? I said, sure. Um, I lied to him. I didn't have any intention to stop. So for 27 months, I was going to therapy while I was still drinking and using other drugs. And, and, and because he didn't call me on anything or he didn't notice, well, he, I can't, he didn't call me on anything. I just assumed he didn't notice. And so I was just, my mind said, see, he's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. This stuff doesn't really affect me. Um, wasn't true. Um, but eventually um, I was in his office complaining that I couldn't 
meet anyone like me who wasn't drinking and using drugs without going to hang out in bars or going to parties. And, right. and he suggested that I, I go to a, a meeting with people who had a commitment to not drink or use other drugs so I could meet people like me. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a response to that. You know, so, I, so I went and I met someone there and they told me that my largest problem was um, the first fixed pillar drink. And if I were to stop getting high, that these other these other external things that seem problematic to me would would take care of themselves. And mm. um, it sounded too simplistic to me, um, and I rejected the notion of it. But eventually, I did go to a, a treatment center um, for a drug and alcohol a dependency. And um, my I didn't go there to stop drinking or using other drugs. I went there to escape from all of the from. The world wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. If it would only do what I knew it was supposed to do, I'd be okay. Yeah. And so I, I went. But halfway through this process, I, I realized um, the severity of the illness that I have, um, which is addiction. And I understood that there was a, a, a way in which I could, I could address that and treat it. But that, that, that would be an ongoing basis because, it's, because I, I learned there and, and I... I have experienced it to be true that it's a chronic, um, it's a chronic illness. And so I, uh, I entered into a process of, of waking up. Because once I took away those social anesthetics, all of a sudden, all of the feelings and that, that, were, that, were being, um, that were being sort of smothered under that blanket began to burst into the open. And I had no idea what was going on. And I didn't have the skills to be willing to be able to understand or process. That's where therapy then began to be useful for me. Therapy wasn't an, is not, therapy wasn't the solution. What therapy did was give me some essential tools that enabled me to begin to navigate um, through this awakening that I was experiencing. Um, eventually, um, I, I needed, eventually there's just, I, I needed, there was something else. It was something, I needed something more. I needed something else. And uh, a social worker suggested that I go to a meditation, Buddhist meditation well, retreat. Before we, before we get into that, Claude, sure. I want us to go to our, our short break. I, Great. I want to invite, um, I want to invite all of you to go to his website. It's Zalto. Foundation, so it's zaltho.org, and he's going to talk about that and the other parts of his journey when we return. Thank you for being with us today. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to The Intentional Spirit with Reverend Temple Hayes. And welcome back, everyone, and thank you. And oh my, we're having just a wonderful, touching experience as we talk with a Zen monk and an amazing human, uh, Claude Anshen Tamas. And he is touching our lives, and he is going to tell us about his foundation he is a Purple Heart recipient. He is an incredible man and is touching us all today. So, Claude, um, 
you were just starting to talk about how you discovered meditation. Yes. Now, I had an experience with a with techniques that were called meditation. I, I started, I studied and taught martial arts for 27 years. And so there was a, a period of silent reflection. It's, it's a bit like, uh, I guess what I was doing was a bit like what's being defined now in the active duty military community as resiliency training, where I was being taught how to rather control my mind rather than wake up. Now, the social worker um, understood that sort of traditional avenues of healing that were available to me or traditional avenues of, of um, help wasn't, they didn't work for me because it was available through institutions that I didn't necessarily trust. Um, I had a, I had a, I'm still not intensely trust. I'm still not really trusting of large institutions, but um she recommended that I go to this med- this meditation retreat that was being held for Vietnam for veterans, Vietnam veterans, mm-hmm. and uh, that it was being facilitated by a Buddhist monk, and he'd had some success in working with veterans, and it would probably might be an interesting place for me to go. I did think she was crazy. Um, I I I couldn't see any possibility. I, I was it just smacked of religion to me, and I didn't want anything to do with it. However because I wanted to protect a safe place, which was um, uh, created through her support, I agreed to go. Um, I didn't make it easy for them to accept me, but I did go. Um, they did accept me. And um, that was a, it was a, it was a, it was like another turning point in my life. So the first one was to stop taking intoxicants. And then um, I was, I, I was introduced into this practice of, of, um, uh, breath awareness it's it's more than that but I'll, I'll keep it that simple um that uh i was introduced into um sitting meditation and i was also instructed to understand that sitting was only a form of meditation and that meditation and truth can't be taught that they could give me instructions on the form i needed to commit myself to the form and then um, meditation in time would show itself to me. It would be revealed to me what meditation was. Also, I was um, being told consistently that um, once I got up off the cushion, the meditation cushion, that meditation didn't stop there. The daily life and meditation weren't two things. And so um, I just kept I just kept doing the next thing. Um, this process of of um, this process of discovering how to live at peace with my unpeacefulness was uh, challenging and challenging, disoriented, and at times extremely emotionally painful. Um, it was disorienting in the fact that I didn't, I didn't, I would find myself not, I, I can't, I couldn't act in the way in which I had. I, I had to deal with life differently and I didn't know how to do that. So I was in this sort of em- this nebulous space un- until new um, until new behaviors began to fill that up, healthier behaviors. And um, I was invited to come to their monastery, so I went with the intention to visit for a month, um, and I ended up staying for three years. Um, I left that monastery, 
and uh, came back to the U.S. And uh, I was back in the U.S. about a month, and then I met the person who I'm ordained by now. So the original monastery I lived and studied at was not in the U.S. It was in France. And the monastery where I um, studied to become ordained in this lineage was located in Yonkers, New York. Um, I, uh, I, I've always had, I've always had a desire to be socially active, and and so um, I, um, I heard that there was going to be a pilgrimage from Poland to Vietnam. A group of Japanese monks were going to do that. And I saw that as a way for me to get back to Vietnam because it was I just somehow wanted to really go back there under different circumstances. And so I was I re- received my novice ordination um, in Poland by the person who I received my full um, uh, monastic ordination by. And then I walked from Poland to Vietnam. And um, I, I was sort of skeptical about this whole process of ordination and vows and all of that. But in truth, the more I, the more, with every step that I took along this path, along this pilgrimage, I, I had this deep abiding sense that, that the path that I was embarking on, this way of living was the best in the world for me, that it made sense. When I came back from that pilgrimage, um, I then started, I then made the, I then started, founded the Zalto Foundation. That's, um, you, you announced that earlier, um, Z-A-L-T-H-O dot org. Um, Zalto, a lot of people say, well, I'm a Zen monk. And so a lot of people are trying to figure out what's the Zen reference with Zalto and what's it mean. And, and, and actually it's an acronym for my son's name. Um, I haven't always been a monk. Oh, I, I wondered. I wondered where that <laughs> came from. I knew there had to be a story. Yeah, it's an acronym for my son's name. And I named the foundation, I gave that foundation that name as a, in honoring all of the children of combat veterans who are also uh, deeply and profoundly affected um, to the trans- transgenerational effects of war, violence, and suffering. And so um, I founded the Zolto Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. It's uh, listed as a Buddhist church um, as a way to encourage people to donate money to support Vietnam veterans to go back to Vietnam. Um, because I, I said, okay, so what can I do? I, I asked them for money. I said, okay, if you donate here, then I can give you a tax certificate and you can get a write-off for the money that you, you donate to support. The foundation has grown so far beyond my wildest imaginations. Um, we do, uh, and in, the foundation does an incredible amount of work. Um, uh, and and since uh, in, in the past two years, as a result of COVID and, and the limitations on travel, um, up until COVID, I was traveling probably 260 days a year. Um, went, and as a result of COVID, I w- I, travel was restricted. And so, and, and meeting with groups was restricted. So what began to happen is I was more stationary here uh, in the area where I'm living. And because I was more stationary, people sort of, the word got out that I was here. And, and, and so we began to do a lot of work in the, in the local community. And I, 
I get calls to go on suicide interventions. I get calls to go on um, drug and alcohol interventions. These are all supported by the foundation. Um, we set up uh, funds with two different uh, uh, veterinary clinics that will support uh, uh, economically disadvantaged veterans who have dog, uh, pets who are very important in their life, and yet they can't always give them the care they need. So we've set up a fund with two veterinary, uh, veterinary clinics to support um, economically disadvantaged veterans to care for their pets. Um, I, I'm um, meeting I'm going out and introducing myself into these um, homeless encampments around the area, I'm getting to know uh, the people who live there and seeing what we can do to support them. Um, I don't have any intention about what they need. I allow them to teach me. Um, I also, um, we also have online offerings every Thursday and Saturday. We have formal sittings um, online. That's all. This all can be found through the Zalto Foundation. The other interesting thing is that I've had the privilege to have two books published. And the first book that was published is in 2012, but it's uh, 2012, but it's still available. And and it's and the title of the book is "At Hell's Gate: A Soldier's Journey from War to Peace." Mm. And um, it's available. Um, it, it's available through all of the places where you can buy books. And then the second book, and this just was released, the, the title of the book is uh, Bringing Meditation to Life. Um, and, and this, again, this book is also offered through all the various places where you can buy books. And if you want to know where they are, you can go onto the foundation's website and, and you can, and it will direct you. Um, there's now a board of directors with this foundation and, and it's comprised of volunteers where uh, it's a very, um, the real blue collar organization. Um, yet the people who, who on this board are, ex, they're, they're extremely dedicated, bright, creative people. Um, it, it's amazing the things that they've accomplished, uh, the things that they do. Um, we, we survive only on, um, uh, we survive only on donations. We're not a wealthy foundation. And the money that comes into us the ninety percent of it goes to direct services. So, how can we put that money to best use in the support of um, communities in need? Um, we, I, the foundation itself is not a service-providing institution, but rather um, we like to look at ourselves as a clearinghouse. Um, so, when we identify needs, we've also gone out into the community identifying service providers. Um, that 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 we uh, that we know provide good service, and so we can direct people to places where they can get good hands-on service. Um, also, on Sundays, on Sunday mornings at eleven, I I do an open session where people can can join and ask any question they like. We do a question and responses. Um, there's also a podcast channel um, where, and often those question and response sessions are. Um, recorded and and then put together as a podcast and, and they're available on the various podcast channels. Um, there's an Instagram and Facebook accounts for the Zolzo Foundation if people are interested to know more about us. Um, but but we I want to keep my effort is to keep things simple and grounded in in the basic 
tenant that if I want, if I want my life to be different, I have to be willing to do things differently. And if I want to see, if I want there to be peace in the world, then I need to be that peace that I want to see in the world. So for me, it's not so much about changing the changing the world or changing the institutions in the world or changing the other people in the world, but rather being willing to wake up to the roots of war, violence, and suffering in me so that they can become transformed. That transformation, that healing is not the absence of suffering. It is learning to live in a different relationship with that. So it, so that what we used to perceive as suffering uh, suddenly isn't. It just isn't. But that doesn't mean it's not present. And people would ask me questions when I was a lot in the public, and they would say, you know, you, you, you Buddhists are depressing. All you talk about is suffering. They thought, I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I go, well, that's suffering. Because if we have, we have all of these ideas of what happiness is, and those ideas are shaped by all of that conditioning that pre-exists us, those family generations, the culture and customs, the, the culture and society that we're part of, they shape our ideas of things. And then we attempt to get our life to conform to our idea of happiness, and that rarely happens. And we end up unhappy because life isn't conforming to what it isn't doing what we wanted to do right exactly yeah and so what i was in the most powerful thing that i the most powerful gift that i was given when i first stepped into buddhist practice was one i didn't have to believe anything two it didn't matter what i thought or said it mattered what i did Hmm. and and it was about simply being willing to concentrate on the breath and become or and becoming aware of what distracted me from staying concentrated on the breath because as i'm able to develop um, a steady concentration on the breath then um, the the world is constantly providing me with with answers of what's going on mm-hmm. the, any question that i have can is answered for me if i'm willing to just be still and listen but it 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 for for a person like me to be still it was so painful and because in the stillness all of that all of the memories and the thoughts and the, all of the feelings they would just suddenly they were, were bubbling into consciousness and and uh, and until i developed the qualities to be able to to be at peace with this unpeacefulness i really i i I just wanted it gone. It it never goes away though. It just doesn't. You know what the the woven fabric within the energy of your story is how with all your experiences you've been able to shift it to to make the world a better place because you were here. Yeah. You know, make it a better place because you were here to resonate with the compassion of humanity. <clears throat> and I, I think that, you know, that I always say, and I say this often when I speak, stop blaming your parents if you're over 30 years old, <laughs> you know, because uh, come on already, you know, it, it can no longer be their responsibility. Um, what I often say publicly 
is what my mother did to me was criminal. Yeah. What I do with it, though, is my responsibility. There you go. Yes, totally. There you go. And it has brought, it has helped me understand, um, you know, family systems better. And, and sometimes people will say to me, you're so comfortable, you know, with confrontation and often, you know, Temple, you're so diplomatic. And I said, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. (laughs) I had to grab the window that I had and capture the moment and say what needed to be said. So it really shape-shifted me, but truly um, it's helped me understand, you know, uh, a lot of family systems, a lot of religious systems, uh, some of the pain of of that that false identification and um it it's truly phenomenal what you've done with um your life and that and what i what i was in what i was introduced to was that it wasn't my responsibility to change my life it was merely my responsibility to to sit down become still and allow that process to unfold. I have to be an active participant in that, but to allow that process to unfold and and to stop attempting to control it, to really allow it to unfold. Mm -hmm. And then learn how to uh, navigate and negotiate through that process of unfolding. And that's where the discipline, um, the discipline of the spiritual practice that I'm ordained into serves me. And that's what I do. I, I, I simply pass that along to others. They can do with it what they want. You know, it, it's like, I just keep telling people, I don't care what you think, believe, or say. Like, if, if you embrace these tools, no matter what, no matter what your re- religious proclivities might be, if you embrace these tools, um, they can take you more deeply into that. If you don't have any religious proclivities if you're whatever you whatever is your grounding in the world or whatever is your is your way of of understanding these these practices can help you to go more deeply into that and it doesn't yeah you just just to do them five minutes in the morning five minutes the evening just sit be still concentrate on the breath see what happens Very powerful. So where do you go from here? You know, what, well, what, what's next on your horizon? Yeah, there's, a, uh, there's another book uh, coming out and probably in the next month. It may be shorter than that. Um, we, I will continue. And what, we're beginning to, what we're beginning to do now is, is that we're beginning to support groups of people uh, coming together in, in healthy and skill, skill, healthy and skillful ways so that we can learn how to live in a conscious relationship with COVID. Um, so it's about um, trusting in science, not abandoning common sense, and saying, okay, so now based on the totality of experience we have over the last two years, how can we begin to come together in a sane and sensible way without risking each other's lives. And, and so we're, we're also embarking on these processes gently um, as, as people are willing. Um, we have a set of protocols in place and as people are willing, we, be, we, um, we are beginning to, to step back out again or to invite people in. So that's happening and 
And I, mean, I just never, I, I never know what's next. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I continue to stay dedicated in, in the, the basic tenets of, of Zen practice. We continue, our on, continue the online offerings. Um, I continue to accept invitations when they come. Um, predominantly, they're, they're now online. Um, and uh, I just, I, I, I do what's the next thing in front of me to do. You're moving to, to, to uh, Santa Barbara. Good luck with it. <laughs> I know. I, I tell you, I... Uh... I have a, I have a, a someone who's, who's um, been involved with the foundation and uh, someone who I'm personally connected with for now for quite some years lives in Santa Barbara. Oh, well, that's nice to know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we can have an encounter or do they do um, any kind of courses or teaching or anything or? Uh, currently not. Okay. They're, they're active in a different, they're active in the business world. Okay. But they, they are, uh, but they continue to invoke the what they've learned through the through the first 10, 15 years that they were actively engaged. They bring that with them into the business world. That's oh, like, that's wonderful. We now have we now have three people who've um, so the Zalto Foundation is also a referring agency for people who a referring organization for people who might want to become chaplains. Um, wow. And so we have one person who is now a board certified chaplain, a Buddhist, a Buddhist chaplain, who's serving in hospitals in Boston, Massachusetts, two separate hospitals. We have another uh, long-term uh, practitioner who's, um, who has received their master's in social work and they're working uh, with veterans in the, uh, in the community. Um, we have another veteran who's studying to be a, a chaplain who wants to work in in the community of veterans now we don't just work with veterans but um, um we also uh, let's see we so we just have that, that there's just as we continue to stay active in the world there are different things that keep presenting themselves to us to do um I don't know what else to say. No, I, I hear you. I, yeah. I get it. I absolutely get it. Um, it's just wonderful work. And um, I want to remind everybody to go to the Salto organization. It's Z-A-L-T-H-O dot org. And discover more about what Claude and his team, what they're actively doing and what they're working on. And I'm 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 very pleased with both of us that we've gone almost an hour and we haven't talked about COVID. How refreshing! <laughs> well, and that's that. I did mention it slightly, but it it just it just kind of blended in and it didn't stand ah, out and it wasn't a big banner and no, you know, because uh, we acknowledge that it's there. We're aware. Um, we're not in denial, but on the other hand. Um, you know, there, it has taken uh, so much power in, in people's lives of their thinking and, and like you said, the distraction and focusing on things that we have no control over, you know, can't do anything about other than, you know, being safe and mindful and, you know, all those things. But um, Well, that is one of the things that, when, just briefly on that topic, one of the things that I'm working with now with, um, so 
the organizations also has um, sister organizations in Europe and in South America. Okay. And so in South America, we're also highly involved with, with um, like in Colombia, with the, 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 the situation there with paramilitaries and guerrillas and sold, national soldiers and kidnapped victims and, and in Chile with victims of torture and abuse and 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 uh, and so what we're working with now is in this effort to encourage people to sort of now now we have some tools to come back together how to do that how to not start using covid as an excuse to not come together right because we can come together in in safe and healthy ways so how to how to do it's now talking about how to do that um, but of course, I have some. I have some clear. I have some clear notions about that. I don't impose that on people around me. But if they want to be involved with me, then then there are some pretty clear ways in which that has to be done. Yeah, no doubt about it. Yep. Well, I tell you, I've been a pleasure today. Thank I really, you. I've enjoyed being in your presence, yes. and I just acknowledge you for the work you're doing. Thank you. And our listeners, either in current time or in other time, will benefit and enjoy it. We'll also send you the Zoom link. And of course, there's the audio to connect on Unity Online Radio, the voice for an awakening world. For those of you that want to tune in, please join me at Temple Hayes, templehays.com. We love to hear about the guests and the different individuals you'd like to feature. And I'm sure you're going to go to Salto to understand what it is that that Claude and his group are doing. And I want to thank all of you for participating today. Thank you, Claude. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm. 